Welcome to the Star Trek Academy, a podcast about the on-screen versions of Star Trek. For right now, we're looking back at Star Trek Picard, and in this podcast, we're talking about episodes 8, 9, and 10, the final three episodes of Picard Season 1, Broken Pieces, and Et in Acadia Ego, Parts 1 and 2. I'm Dr. Michael Merrick, the media guy. And I'm Dr. Rodney Cup, the philosophy guy on the faculty. Our website is the Star Trek Academy.blogspot.com. And there you can find links to podcast sites where you can listen to us and subscribe. And uh, probably the best way to keep track of our new episodes and other announcements is probably our Twitter feed, which is at Trek underscore Academy. We invite you to go back and listen to our podcasts about season three episodes of Discovery, as well as the complete first season of Lower Decks. That'd be a great way to get ready for Lower Decks season two, which premieres Thursday, August 12th in the United States, at least, and I'm excited. Now, I haven't checked to see if it's delayed in other countries, but uh, yeah, some cool stuff. Presumably, some cool stuff coming up in Star Trek. But today, as I said, we're talking about the final three episodes of Star Trek Picard Season 1. And we assume that listeners have watched Picard by now, because as we're recording, it was a year or more ago that that they were brand new. But we're still going to offer a summary to refresh our collective memories and set the scene for our discussion. And with that, here is Dr. Cup. All right, so in the first of these episodes, we're told that an ancient civilization created an octanary star system to attract attention to a planet that they had also placed there. And on this planet was this warning not to create synthetic life. That's the way the Romulans took it anyway. And they took that warning very seriously and created the Jat Vash to stamp out synthetic life wherever it arose. And in fact, they were behind the attack on Mars. They knew that horrific kind of event would prompt the Federation to ban synthetic life altogether. But Maddox continued his work on a distant planet in secret. And two synths from that planet made contact with a Starfleet vessel, the Ibn Majid. And Rios was serving on that vessel at the time under orders from Commodore O, Rios's captain murdered them and then committed suicide. So that's awful. The crew of La Serena also learned that Gerardi had a tracking isotope in her blood, which we, the viewers, knew, and also that she had murdered Bruce Maddox. But she was still under O's influence when she did that, thanks to that mind meld that we saw in an earlier episode. Now, Picard tells Admiral Clancy about the threat to the synth planet, and she agrees to send a squadron to meet them at DS-12, but La Serena never makes it because Soji wants to go to her homeworld and warn them that the Romulans are coming, and Rios agrees to take them there. Meanwhile, Seven of Nine returns to the artifact and reactivates it. In response to this, Nerissa jettisons all the Borg still in stasis into space and kills the XBs, and then the Romulan fleet departs for the synth's home planet. Now, in the next episode, La Serena, Narek, and the Artifact arrive at Capellius, that's the name of the synth homeworld, and they're brought down to the planet surface by these orchid-like planetary defenses. While this is happening, Picard loses consciousness, and this prompts Gerardi to scan him with a tricorder, 
And in doing so, she discovers his brain abnormality and Picard informs the crew that his condition is terminal. They set off for the artifact and they find Elnor and Seven of Nine there and long range scanners reveal that a fleet of 218 Romulan warbirds is on its way. Next, they enter Synthville, as Rafi calls it, to warn them and they meet Alton Inigo Sung, the son of Data's creator, as well as a synth named Sutra, who convinces Jurati to let her perform a mind meld so that she can see the admonition, the warning for herself. Sutra determines that the Romulans did not understand it because it was not intended for organic minds. Rather, it was created by a federation of synthetic civilizations as a promise to support synthetic life in their struggle against oppression by organics. And Sutra argues that they should ask them to eliminate the Romulan threat. Picard, however, offers to help them flee the planet. Soji sides with Sutra and Picard is placed under house arrest. And that brings us to the season finale, which begins with Rios and Rafi using a tool given to them by Arcana to repair La Serena. And while the synths are building this beacon with which they're going to contact their liberators, Rios, Rafi, and Elnor join forces with Narek to destroy the beacon with a grenade. And they nearly succeed, but Soji hurls the grenade into the sky where it explodes harmlessly. Meanwhile, Jurati uses Saga's remaining eyeball to free Picard from the room in which he is being kept and they leave the planet aboard La Serena to delay the Romulan assault and buy time for, the, for Starfleet to arrive. The Romulans easily defeat the remaining orchids. Soji activates the beacon and opens a portal. Starfleet arrives in the nick of time with a squadron of ships commanded by Riker who orders O to stand down, but she can't do that, of course, as long as the beacon is on. Picard fortunately convinces Soji to deactivate it, and she does, and the Romulans depart for a Romulan space, escorted by Riker. At that point, Picard collapses, and Soji transports him and Jurati to Synthville, where Picard dies, or at least his body does. Picard finds his consciousness with Data's in a massively complex quantum simulation. Data informs Picard that Gerardi and Alton have scanned, mapped, and transferred a complete neural image of his brain substrates before he died and that he will be leaving. But before he goes, Data asks Picard to terminate his consciousness because mortality gives meaning to human life, and Picard does so. Now with his golem body, he wakes up, and Soji assures him that he is indeed real. And the synth ban is lifted, so Soji and Picard are free to travel. They leave the planet aboard La Serena, along with Seven of Nine, Elnor, and the rest of the crew. Okay, thank you very much for that summary. And as usual, first we'll take a look at some of the individual elements. Then in a bit we'll talk about the themes and ethics portrayed in, in these three episodes and kind of in the series as a whole, too. It's sort of hard to separate in terms of the messages, morals, and meanings, hard to separate out these three episodes from the rest. I wanted to note, Rodney, that the, the title of the first of these three episodes, Broken Pieces, at one level, it refers to a situation in which Rafi is talking to all of the holograms that look like Rios at once. Right. And each one of them has a bit of the background story about 
what happened with uh, with Rios and Jana. None of them has the whole story. And, mm -hmm. and there's a mention that there are the broken pieces. But as we've reflected on several times uh, during our look at Picard, everyone on La Serena is at some at some level broken. And so I think that is also a reference to, uh, to the overall setting there of broken pieces. And that's one of the things I love about this season is that you can find these sort of shades of, of meaning, like you just described in the series. And that's not the only place. Um, you, know, you know, Rodney, in, in the old days of episodic television, you wouldn't have those layers of meaning mm. where something in one episode reinforces another episode, reinforces the the season finale. That That is, since the time of season-long story arcs, that is something that has become much more possible and, and in a way to do that's much more nuanced also. Yeah, and, you know, I, I know a lot of Trek fans, you know, prefer episodic storytelling. But, you know, th this uh, serial format has a lot going for it as well. So, I mean, they both have their virtues, right? Mm -hmm. um, now, we find out in Broken Pieces, this that episode, that Rafi was right about almost everything. Okay, so, you know, maybe that message, the admonition was not a warning, but it was a promise. But she was right about almost everything. And, and she strikes me as kind of like the Fox Mulder of Star <laughs> Trek Picard, right? She's the true believer in a way. Most conspiracy theories, though, maybe all of them or almost all of them are, are just completely loony. And myself, I'm not exactly comfortable with the conspiracy theorists being right in this series, but you know, that's just my own preference. Well, remember Rafi, I mean, Picard says that Rafi's, the uniqueness about her is that she sees patterns that others don't. So something that does look to other people like conspiracy, there's something that connects together in in her mind and she has more insights about it than the average person. So we're led to believe. Yeah. In working much of the way through these three episodes, Soji still doesn't know what's real and what isn't and whether she is real or not. And I, I think it's kind of artistic that Picard tells her she has a story that is waiting to be claimed. And he's talking about the programmed memories in her mind, but also going forward. And I thought it was interesting in that scene that Picard also admits that he, like Data, has limited capacity mm -hmm. to process emotions. Yep. Uh, I think he's doing better in these episodes. He's, he's learning. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we've noted that he's not doing that very well. And so he's making progress. I think that's certainly intentional by the writers. And, Absolutely. you know, Sochi, I was thinking about that. Sochi here, you know what I mean by imposter syndrome? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind it's of a the psychological feeling that, feeling that yeah, we're, we're not, I'm not really good at what I'm doing. You right. know, yeah, I have this job, but I'm not really good at it and feel kind of like an imposter. But I think that's, in a way, that's what's going on for Sochi. I mean, she has these programmed memories and she knows that they're not real. She knows that her oh, her background right. and experience isn't real. And so when she says, "Am I real? When am am I real?" You know that that's at least some similarities to that imposter syndrome that that we hear about. I hadn't thought about that. You know, it reminds me of the scene in which Picard introduces Soji to uh, Troy and Riker, and he introduces her as Doctor Soji Asha, and she says, "Just Soji." Right, yeah, as if yeah. she hasn't earned that title, right? Mm -hmm. That's that's a really good point. You know, in that same scene, 
Picard tells Soji that he hopes Data would remember him as someone who believed in him. And I liked how, you know, at the close of the season in that final episode, Picard tells Soji that he believed in her too, which is a nice parallel, Mm -hmm. right? And there are a number of parallels I, I noticed here, which were appealing to me. When Arcana meets Picard, she expresses admiration for his face, right? She's uh, fascinated with it. She says his lines imply grief and endurance, and she says that they're marvelous. And this reminded me of Gerardi's admiration of Soji when she first met her. She said that her beauty marks her artistry and called her a technological masterpiece and a work of art. And this is nice, but on one level, it's a kind of objectification, isn't it? During that scene uh, between Gerardi and Soji, Soji asked Gerardi, but am I a person, right? So, you know, these objects, as it were, may be beautiful works of art, but it's a further question whether the the admired thing is a person that is a being with full and equal moral rights. And, you know, Picard is somewhat different than the synths have come across because he's older than yeah. than Dr. Sung. You know, so the, the aging of his features is something maybe they've never seen before. Um, right. And, you know what that reminds me so of. So they're, they're even asking, they're even thinking about whether he is like them or different from them, just like oh. Soji and Agnes are discussing similarities or difference. And I interrupted right. you. What, what does it remind you of? Oh, no, I I was just going to say, it just hit me. I watched Logan's Run recently, and I don't know if you remember that movie. It's from a long time ago, and at the end, (laughs) right, when all these, you know, youngsters from inside the dome encounter Peter Peter Ustinov's character. Yeah, (laughs) Uh anyway. Another parallel I noticed is, uh, you know, Picard (laughs) finds himself in a situation on Capellius that's similar to the one he was in when he was trying to relocate uh, Romulans way back when, right? He's trying to relocate these people and trying to get them to trust the Federation. And they um, don't really want to be relocated. Yeah. It, it, it just, I'm like, it's happening again. So I, I just found that to be yeah. interesting. A few other things I wanted to mention here. Th- there's nice bits of editing in this series. And just to give you an example, in episode nine, when we meet Sutra for the very first time, we meet her when Alton is describing Maddox as devious, right? And that's exactly what Sutra turns out to be, right? And I just thought that was a great example of like thoughtful editing. Not that I'm a filmmaker by any means, but, but I really like that. You know, speaking of editing, we had another scene that we've, we've seen twice before this season where planning something and implementing it are intercut right. back and forth. This this right. time it was the attempt to blow up the beacon. We saw it in back in the very beginning of the season when when they were going back and forth between uh, between Chateau Picard and Soji's apartment. And then we right. saw it in Stardust City Rag as they were right. planning the caper and executing it. And it worked it worked here also. I mean three times a season might be a bit much. <laughs> but but just the dynamic of going back and forth and the pacing worked really well. I liked it too. I mean, except for that first example that you that you mentioned, which I, I couldn't make sense of, but but these other examples have, have worked for me. We're also introduced to Alton's uh, Gollum in the same scene in which he explains why he made his own butterflies. And I'm sure viewers notice these butterflies and 
maybe we're wondering, you know, what are these doing here? I don't know. But to me, it suggests that it's suggestive of the transformation that a golem undergoes when mental substrates are added to it. And that it's like the transformation a caterpillar undergoes to become a butterfly, right? And this not only foreshadows Picard's transformation, <laughs> he, you know, in the end, he's like that butterfly, right, emerging. But it's symbolic of that transformation. It, it foreshadows it. And, you know, it also symbolizes morality, right? They have this symbol doing double duty here, right? At mm-hmm. the end where Data says an immortal butterfly isn't really a butterfly at all, right? Which, uh, you, you know, as you know, Picard chooses at the end to be mortal. You know, he doesn't want to live forever. You know, Rodney, when I first saw the final episode a year or more ago, I was kind of bemused by the Starfleet fleet leaving so soon. They show up, they stand up to the Romulans, the Romulans take off, and then Starfleet disappears again really quick. But in watching it, it's clear to me now, and it's as you said in your summary, it's clear to me now that they didn't just go back to Deep Space 12 or whatever, that Riker and the fleet were intending to follow the Romulans back to Romulan space. You know, he says, I'd be happy to escort you. And Commodore Rose says, not necessary. Oh, it's no trouble. Right. Uh, They were probably... I mean, not technically escorting them because they would have been a few minutes behind at, at warp drive, but but I, I think them leaving so fast was intended to to trail the Romulans back to their Romulan space so they wouldn't come back and cause problems later. And of course, that's also a plot device because when Picard all of a sudden becomes terminally ill, you don't have a whole bunch of Starfleet ships around with advanced medical procedures to help him. They have to go with what's available at Coppelius. True, though I don't know if they could have done anything to help him, but I, I'm not sure about that. I don't know, and uh, but but wouldn't the first inclination have been beam him over to the, the Zhenghi, uh, because, you know, beam him to our sick bay here, but uh, so... Yeah, but anyway, so it was just a really, and really, it was just a quick cameo for Jonathan Frakes. Were about what two scenes, two or three, two or three right. quick lines of dialogue, and then he was gone again. Right. You know, Jonathan Frakes can do a cameo whenever he likes, as far as I'm concerned. Let's let's think about that title of the two part season finale. I was I was curious about that. Et in Arcadia ego. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but I I suppose it's Latin for. And in Arcadia, I am. Well, what is Arcadia? Well, according to Merriam-Webster, it's an isolated place of naive and ideal innocence. And I think that describes Capellius pretty well. Now, Mm -hmm. this innocence has been corrupted probably by the deceptive and devious Bruce Maddox. But the Capellians, as Picard points out, are children, right? They're innocent, but they're basically children who need to be taught according to Picard, that being alive is not only a responsibility, but also a right. And this is something Soji has to learn also, right? That we're not allowed to violate people's rights when it's expedient to do so. And this is what Soji is tempted to do, you know, to summon their liberators and destroy organic life in their own defense. And we also have responsibilities to our fellow sentient beings at one point, he Picard, that is, tells Soji that, that they are there to save each other, that the sins and the other friendly organics are there to help each other. I didn't look up 
uh, as you did at in Arcadia Ego, but the common use of the term ego, like an egotist, uh, mm -hmm. really, really is a reference to self. And and I wonder if it could be interpret, interpreted as a reference to sentience, because that's kind of that's one of the things we're looking at. You know, are the synths real? Are they people? Maybe I should I, ask I'm my not, dean about yeah, this. I'm not she sure knows where to, this stuff. Yeah, I'm not sure where to go with that exactly. But uh, we are talking about thought, rational thought, understanding uh, in this in this natural setting, and that mm. and that is part one and part two. It's the title for this the second and the third of these these three episodes. Right. I wanted to talk about the USS Zhenghe. It is named after a real-world Chinese mariner, explorer, diplomat, fleet admiral. He lived way back around 1371 to 1434, and he commanded treasure fleets voyaging from China to Southeast Asia, the Indian subcontinent, all the way to West and maybe even East Africa. There's a guy who's written some books claiming that there's evidence that Zheng He's fleets, one of them crossed the Atlantic to North and South America, although I don't think historians give much credence to that. But I thought it was a nice Asian multicultural illusion because, right. I mean, for decades, Starfleet ships, I mean, some of them are named after aliens, you know, alien words, but most of them are after well-known Western, either naval characters or at least famous famous people from Western culture. I thought it was nice to, right. to have uh, have that reference to Asian culture. And I, I, I got the idea online. It doesn't seem, people don't seem to think so, but I got the idea that was the class name, not just the name of the ship, but the name of a whole, a whole new class of, mm -hmm. of Starfleet ships. Doesn't Riker say that he is commanding the most powerful ship in the fleet and that he's got a bunch of them with him. I that, mean, that was that my is impression. New class. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it seems like it, you know, and, and I was thinking about it. Starfleet essentially has a ship of the line system, not too much different from like 18th and 19th century navies. Now, back then it was a reference to ships that line up for a battle, you know, two lines of ships come together and, and battle. But but oh. it, but the ships of the line are also the biggest, the most powerful of the Navy ships, um, the first line. And I, I've seen back in the in the era of the original series, I saw the role of the original Enterprise, uh, the Enterprise Prime, described as a ship of the line, the, the, the main ship going out conducting diplomacy and showing the colors and, and larger crews and having... Mm -hmm broad, not so specialized capabilities as opposed to like a science vessel or something like that. Right. And, uh, and it seems like Starfleet commissions a new class of first line ships roughly every 20 years or so. You had the Constitution class, which was succeeded by the Excelsior class, which was succeeded by the Galaxy class, right. which was succeeded by the Sovereign class. That's the, that's the Enterprise E. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, and now possibly this this new class, and I assume that those that are superseded move into secondary roles and things, and and that is, I mean, it's not too much different from every twenty years or so, except for the gap between the Excelsior and the Galaxy class, and I'm wondering if that's where the Nebula class came in, 
We see that a few times. It has a saucer, kind of like a galaxy class, but the secondary hull is way smaller, and sometimes there's kind of a sensor pod on top. So I wonder mm -hmm. if that was the class in the middle that the galaxy class superseded, kind of built on their saucer, but but with a bigger secondary hull. Anyway, I wish we had gotten a better, more clear version of the Zhenghe or the Zhenghe class. Uh, but who knows, that might come in the future sometime. Very well, very well could. I mean, I, I would I would expect surely Starfleet's going to pop up in the second season. And I, I have a question for you, Michael. Oftentimes in, in Star Trek, the, you know, the Enterprise is referred to, isn't it, as the flagship? Is there any relationship between that and, and what you're talking about here? Um... Well, in the old world Navy, the flagship is where the flagship of a fleet is where the Admiral is. Oh, okay. You know, and, and the Admiral is on a flagship and the flagship has a captain that runs the ship and the Admiral uses quarters there to manage the fleet. And often that is on a great big, huge uh, ship, but not necessarily the flagship primarily would be where, if you will, the Admiral's offices are. So Am I right they, about that? Well, they, the, the Enterprise D, they, they said several times it was the flagship. Okay, um, okay. <laughs> um, I'm not sure if that's true in the Enterprise E or later things right. like that. But uh, And the Enterprise D did not have an admiral on board. No. So the no, terminology no. there was, was a little bit different. There was one final just thing I wanted to mention before we get into the messages and morals and ethics, and almost this is almost like a bridging point. It could come on either side. But Seven of Nine, in a way, is a lot like the Quillat Milat. She has said that she sees it as her mission in life to help people who have no hope, whereas the Quillat oh, that's Milat right. commits itself to hopeless causes. Right. So um, the way they go about it is different. Uh, although, in a way, kind of, they're both warrior types. Uh, they are. But there's quite a connection in at least their how they perceive their mission in life, Seven of Nine and the Quillot Milot. Yeah, there is. And that's the sort of Fenris Rangers' reason for being, in a way, right? I mean, they're trying to keep order, but also, you know, give hope to those who have no hope. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I hadn't noticed that. <laughs> anyway, um, we're going to shift gears here a little bit and, as Michael said, talk about any uh, deeper meanings here, morals, messages, and the like that the uh, writers are leaving with us here. Uh, do you want to get us started there? Well, yeah, it's, it's hard to separate out these three episodes from the overall story arc because this is like the culmination of the story arc. And in many ways, these episodes and the season finale kind of close the loop on the different themes and messages that the writers have been developing. I think that the most overt theme here is about discrimination against minority groups. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about, we talked about this last time, make the minority scapegoats rally public opinion against them, and then figuratively shoot yourself in the foot to oppress them. Right. Commodore O to Commodore O it was worth sacrificing millions of Romulan lives to to destroy the place where the synths were working and by extension persuade the Federation to outlaw synths. Her value system said better to die than to be saved by synths because she decided synths were so bad. 
right? That's a pretty twisted value system, I think. Um, another theme here we could talk about is uh, choice. And I actually, I'd have to think about this to see if, if, if mention was made of this earlier, but Soji is, insists in these episodes that since we're never given a choice by organics, and that they, she in particular, had no choice but to summon the destroyers, right, their defenders to protect them. Picard, on the other hand, insists that Soji has a choice. And she can imagine what that choice might be if she doesn't give in to fear, which shuts down logical thinking. That's what fear does. But he trusts her to make the right choice and says that she had that choice all along. And you know, whether to be to the destroyer or not is is up to her, which I think is a good message for all of us, right? Not to give in to fear and and remember that we don't have to do anything. We can step back and make a conscious choice about what we're going to do. I think that there are messages here about leadership. And when I first made a note about this, I was thinking Picard, but, you know, Soji is in a leadership role. Dr. Soong is in a leadership role. Right. And leadership is not just about telling people what to do and expecting obedience. That is not really what leadership is about. Leadership is about listening mm-hmm. and understanding, helping your subordinates be successful. Sometimes a leader isn't even officially in a position of power. A leader is just someone who uses their their social influence to accomplish things. But when you're talking about someone who is in a formal position of authority, also being a leader, it's known as as servant leadership, or the first term I heard it was called service leadership. And mm-hmm. the idea that 99.9% of the time leaders should be collaborating with their subordinates and treating them as subject matter experts and not just bossing them around. And Picard knew this, but he was used to kind of automatically being uh, an object of esteem because of how many times he saved the planet Earth and all his accomplishments and things. And it's right. taken him a while to get back into this leadership mode of working with people and not just making assumptions or telling them what to do without fully informing them. So I think that there are that there are messages here in this season about leadership. You know, what you said reminds me of a scene in one of these three episodes, I forget exactly where it is, where Soji and Picard are having a meal together and Soji asks him how he would hope Data would remember him. And and he describes something like this. He hopes Data would have remembered him as someone who would help him when he needed it and get out of his way when he didn't. I mean, it, it just reminds me of the sort of leadership style that you've just described. Yeah, and, and you know, Picard knows it, but he he's out of the habit maybe. And yeah. you know, his his sojourn at, at Chateau Picard after his kind of semi voluntary retirement has uh, has messed him up a little bit. But he's 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 getting it back and I hope that we will see it back fully by the time the next season comes around. Another theme that we get in this series, and in particular these these last three episodes, is this conflict uh, between fear and secrecy on one side, uh, which is represented by the Jat Vash and the Isolationist Federation, and on the other side, openness, optimism, and the spirit of curiosity, on the other represented by Picard. And this conflict, 
I think the writers would probably say is present now, right? One of the underlying themes of this season is isolationism. As the season was produced, uh, back when it was being actually produced and, and when the writers were writing it, I'm, I'm convinced that the whole storyline was in part a response to the American Trump administration's isolationism. The isolationism with respect to the Romulan refugees can easily be seen as a metaphor for refugees at the American right. southern border yeah. or from other places that want to come that want want to come to the United States and the Federation Council and and therefore Starfleet shuts down what started as a massive act of welcoming and goodwill basically out of out of fear and hate and candidly I think that that part of the storyline from public statements is one of the reasons Patrick Stewart agreed to do this season, that, that he was persuaded that that was an important message. You know, as I think about it, the Gene Roddenberry philosophy is often, or the Star Trek philosophy is all often quoted, but it, it isn't always quoted as being the same thing. If you really go back and study the original series, the Star Trek philosophy, the Roddenberry philosophy boils down to three main things, and then you could have subgroups under it, but ethical responsibilities, human nature Definitely. and what it means to be human, and then logic versus emotion, and kind of as a result, wise decision-making. And Picard season one addresses all three of those. I mean, the questions of Soji, Dodge, and Picard at the end, are they human? Are they real? Uh, the ethics of Picard versus the Jat Vash versus the Federation Council. It's like at least a three-legged stool, if not more. Mm -hmm. The question of whether there was wise decision-making by the Jat Vash, by the residents of Capelius, by, by others. We haven't mentioned it yet, but there's a scene in which Seven of Nine reflects on killing Nerissa, which she did right. uh, after on the Borg cube after the cube was, was on the ground. And she... She kind of confesses that she killed her just because she thought Nerissa needed to be killed. And, yeah. and you could see a certain amount of regret there. Almost every one of the characters in the whole season makes questionable decisions, which I think is intentional on the part of the writers. It's usually out of fear at some level or another, maybe not outright scared to death fear, but fear or apprehension or... You know, we've seen some really good decisions this season, but we've seen some bad decisions too. Absolutely. Um, we could uh, talk also about some of the some of the themes we identified previously. Just really quickly, this uh, theme that Starfleet helps when asked. In the end, Starfleet does the right thing and shows up to protect Capellius from annihilation. As Picard points out to Clancy, unnecessarily, I think, as it turns out. The sins have as much right to life and liberty as anyone else. And finally, Starfleet's doing the right thing and, and really stepping up here and helping them. Another one is, you know, androids being people. We've talked about this a little bit already, but now we have Picard waking up in a golem body. And I really like, it was a very nice touch at the end there when Picard asks, am I real? And Soji says, yes, mm -hmm. you are real. And then finally, you know, Picard makes a meaningful use, if you want to put it that, that way, of his life up until the very end. He's prepared to sacrifice his life to protect Capellius by facing off in that little ship with the Romulans, right? And he makes a difference by convincing Soji uh, to power down the beacon. Now, of course, that was Soji's choice, and she made it, but 
Picard helped her make it. Had she not shut that beacon down, uh, many, many people would have died in, in battle. So not, he not, made a, a difference right up to the very end. Yeah, and not to mention what the, the uber synths might have done to all the rest of the organic life in the, in the galaxy. That as well. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. Well, so um, lots of interesting things here. Uh, I think a strong season. And let's just take a couple of minutes for some conclusions and final thoughts as we look ahead to Lower Decks coming soon. I have to tell you, Rodney, I'm getting a little tired of threats to all sentient life in the galaxy or, or all organic life. The modern producers of Star Trek have done that in Discovery Season 2. Right. And Picard season one here, Discovery season three, it wasn't directly to to all life, but the loss of the of the warp drive capability was at least kind of a threat to society, a threat to the, the functioning of the, the futuristic society. And the previews for Discovery season four suggest there's some other kind of uber threat. You know, right. It's not very clear, but some kind of phenomenon that's many light years across but on the other hand, we're told that Strange New Worlds is going to be more episodic in nature and that the, the ongoing story arc will be, the, will be the character development, the characters over time. And so maybe they're kind of figuring out they don't necessarily have to have a single uber threat mm -hmm. for the entire season. That's been more common recently, I think, in, in science fiction television. But the animated shows aren't. Lower Decks... I guess there was season one, there was sort of a story arc in terms of Beckett's relationship with her mom and making friends with others, but it wasn't the kind of, you know, response to a major threat that, that we've seen so often recently. And so I'm kind of hoping that the tide may flow a little bit the other direction in some of these upcoming seasons. Well, what about the threat posed by Vindicta? I'm just kidding about that. Um, <laughs> no, it was I, one I, episode. One yeah. episode. <laughs> I, I agree with you, Michael. Though, uh, you know, I agree with you. You know, to have the stakes so high all the time is kind of exhausting. You know, these guys um, need a know, break. Yeah. Yeah, the stakes don't always have to be so high. And while you were talking, I just thought of something. You know, maybe you know, strange new worlds kind of has to be episodic in nature because. It's just, it would just be easier to fit those episodes into continuity, right? It's Could a be, lot yeah. harder if you've got like one of these uber threats, you yeah. know, then there are questions, you know, why didn't we hear about this in the original series, right? But if you're just focusing on character development, uh, it'll be easier to fit it into continuity. And, you know, look, I, I like episodic Star Trek. I don't have a problem with that. I'm, I'm really looking forward to the series, but... Um, you know, it's I, we could use a palate cleanser here. I mean, if, if we could compare it to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I thought Ant-Man was a nice palate cleanser because Ant-Man is small and, and the plot in that movie was also quite small. And it, and it was just nice, you know, to have a, a Marvel movie in which our heroes aren't defending Earth against yeah. some threat or That's something. Largely a standalone movie. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we tend to quibble or uh, complain, I think, when we're doing these final thoughts. I've got a minor complaint. Uh, you know, we were told that this octanary star system did not occur naturally and that it was built. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, that, that is impossible to believe that anyone except maybe a Q 
could move eight stars across light years of space and set them in motion. I call BS. I, I just can't suspend my disbelief about that. And I, I just thought that was a poor choice. But and, that's a very small quibble. You know, when you think about the eight stars supposedly were put like that to attract attention because it was a warning, the admonition, come, right. come, come, perceive the admonition. Well, I mean, how did that work? Because if it was a final warning before the synths kill us all, how are we going to have the resources to move eight stars around, even if we could? Back in Next Generation, they told us that, was it the Dakon Empire long, long ago, at least by legend, had the ability to move stars. So, but, oh, really? but, if, but if, if this is our final gasp after the Uber synths are killing this civilization thousands and thousands of years ago, are they going to be able to move stuff around and, and do all this fancy stuff? So, yeah, it's kind of... That's that's another problem with it. We, we, uh, but, the story could have lived without it. And, uh, you know, maybe seven stars, you know, if the <laughs> one of the uh, hologram, holograms was right, you know, that, that would be extremely rare, but, you know, at least possible to occur in nature. But I, like I say, it's a minor quibble, just as an overall summary uh, evaluation of this, I, I just thought you know, after rewatching this and analyzing it, I, I thought that this first season was very well thought out, beautifully crafted. I, I, I'm very impressed with it, I, I have to say. Overall, I, I think it's a very fine piece of television. And it really, I'm impressed. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I mean, in, in all Star Trek, there are always things here and there, sometimes big, sometimes not so big, that I wish they'd made different decisions about. But number one, even if I have that kind of thought, it doesn't it doesn't harm my enjoyment of, of the subject matter. And yeah, I enjoyed this season of Picard as much as any of the the new uh, line of live action Star Trek series. And that means that the next time we're doing a podcast, we're talking about Lower Decks season two. Do you realize that? I'm looking forward to it, Michael. So I, I uh, yeah, I can't wait. It's coming up soon. It is scheduled for august 12th that's a thursday right it's a thursday yes and probably we're going to be recording on sundays so look for our podcast sometime sunday august 15th in u.s time it'll be late late in the day but uh, if all goes well that's when when we'll be here and we'll have our thoughts about lower decks season two watch our twitter feed for announcements as we said at trek underscore academy and uh we thank you for joining us until next time see you next time